All right, good evening. Why don't you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, just so you guys know, because of uh, Thanksgiving next week, we won't be having uh, Wednesday night Bible study. Um, so nobody will be here. Um, and everything, but we'll, of course, start back up the week after. Um, so if, if you've been following the news, you guys probably have heard that the um, big mandate for OSHA, uh, from OSHA for businesses of 100 employees or more um, has gone to the Fifth Circuit Court, um, had a temporary stay put in last week, um, and then again um, they revisited uh, it and made it more of an official statement on it. And then today news just came out that OSHA has stopped all enforcement and implementation of that mandate temporarily, um, So, which is great news. Um, uh, we're still kind of in a wait-and-see moment right now because it's still going to go on to the Sixth Circuit Court um, being appealed um, and everything. Fortunately, you know, courts are supposed to be uh, impartial, um, but it did go to a more conservative uh, court um, at, for the Sixth Circuit. It was interesting, you know, they how they picked the courts. They actually drew ping pongs balls out of a bucket, um, and everything is how because when it comes to federal issues, they have to have a random pick of courts, basically, um, and everything. Because I think the other courts are based on location where you're at and everything so we'll see what happens but for now it's looking like potentially the december 5th and then the january 4th uh deadlines will be pushed out um and everything on that which is good so december 5th was uh uh, companies were supposed to have plans in place on how to implement it and then january 4th was the official cutoff date for what they were going to do so um, we'll see. Our admin, uh, presidential administration still continues to say, oh, just ignore what they're saying. Go ahead and implement it. So, you you know, we we'll pro- might still see some businesses kind of push it. But, you know, we'll see. We'll keep praying and, and um, doing what we can to stand by those who um, are standing on their convictions um, and speak up for those who are in danger of losing their jobs and their livelihoods. So, um, but yeah, let's pray and then we'll get in the Bible study. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for tonight, Lord. Thank you for that time of worship, Lord, that we can calm our hearts and our minds from the busyness of the day, of even just preparing for tonight, Lord, and and recenter and refocus our, our thoughts and our, our hearts on you, Lord that we can draw near to you in worship and praise for who you are, for what you've done for us, Lord. Um, And we thank you so much for that, Lord. I pray as we dive into this, Lord, tonight, that you would speak, Lord, that, that the people would have ears to hear, all of us, myself included, ears to hear what you have to say from your word, Lord. Um, Lord, I pray that you would meet us here and that you would be with us, Lord, that your word would go forth. Um, We ask this in your name. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. That's where we're going to start here. So, 
Um, just a little context here. Philippians was written when Paul was imprisoned in Rome for the first time. Um, if you remember from when we went through the book of Acts, um, Paul uh, was sent to Rome because uh, he had gone down to Jerusalem. Um, and there he was being charged um, by the religious leaders uh, there for um, basically things he didn't do. And then he was sent to a Roman magistrate in the area and uh, imprisoned and beaten and, and falsely accused. And then he stood up on his rights as a Roman citizen and said um, that he would appeal to Caesar. Um, and because of that appeal, then he had eventually made his way all the way to Rome, where he was now chained 24 hours a day to a Roman guard at the time, still having to pay for his own rent in the house he was arrested in, um, having to write, as you read many of the letters, he's asking for things like a cloak and, and um, papers to write on, parchments to write on, and, and things to write with, and, other, and food, and all those sorts of things. So he's there, imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And he's there, um, and the Lord is using him first to witness to those in uh, Caesar Nero's household, which is an amazing thing. He's there. Um, and as you know, he's chained to a Roman uh, guard 24 hours a day. What do you think those conversations sounded like? What that looked like with Paul there, uh, whose desire had always been to go to Rome to preach the gospel, and he's got captive audience every day. Um, and uh, we read about how the household of uh, the Caesar was beginning to um, have many Christians in it as they were placing their faith in Christ. Um, one of the greatest blessings we see out of Paul's imprisonment there in Rome are these many letters that we have. Um, I, I believe, you know, and it's just speculation, that if Paul had continued on in his missionary journeys, we wouldn't have as many of the letters that, as we had, um, where Paul had a time to sit and to write and to expound upon these things that the Holy Spirit uh, laid on his heart and the words that he put in his mouth to write down here, um, beautiful things. So the Lord was using Paul in this suffering and this persecution um, to really give us the majority of the New Testament. It's a beautiful thing that the Lord does. So Paul, he's talking here in, in Philippians, and he talks about the church in Philippi and how blessed he has been to hear the word of of their love, uh, of their um, standing up for the truth, of their defense of the gospel, hearing uh, of um, all the things that are going on in the church. Um, and he's speaking about his suffering and the things that, that he's going through and how the Lord is using his suffering. And he talks about... Um, his understanding, the place where he came to, where he says that to live is Christ, but to die is gain for Paul. For him to come to that point, he truly had to understand that Christ really was his all in his life. That, that Christ dictated to him where he would go, what he would do, 
what he would say, how he would act, how he would live. And, and that was Paul's life at this point. Not that he's perfect, but that's what he had resolved to do. And we see that played out as we read the New Testament, where he's able to say, to live is Christ. And, um, and because he was able to say for him to live is Christ, then he could say, but to die is gain. Because he trusted in Christ as his Savior, that he knew his end, and that um, if he were to die, he would be there in heaven and receiving the rewards for um, his service to the Lord and and being able to cast those crowns at the feet of Jesus. Um, Paul looked forward to that. So then he talks to the church in verse 27. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. So Paul, he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Um, He tells them that they should let their conduct. Do you guys see that? Um, That they should let their conduct conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What Paul was stressing here is that as you place your faith in Christ, then he's done the work in your heart to change you. Uh, He's made you a new creature. He's placed his spirit within you, and he calls you then to obedience, to righteous living, to do what is right. Um, And it is ourselves that restrict us from being obedient. It's not God not giving you the strength, giving you the power, giving you what you need. It's not God not putting you in the situation that you need to be in to succeed. It's you keeping yourself from being obedient to the Lord. That's what, what it is. And that's what Paul says, only let your conduct. If we let the Lord work in our lives, if we yield to him, if we allow him to lead us and direct us, then our conduct will be worthy. It's the, it's the supernatural, natural outflow of Christ in us when we're, not, when we're not quenching the Spirit, when we're not resisting the Lord, being stubborn and stiff-necked, but allowing Him to work in our lives. Then we're letting Him produce fruit. We're abiding in the vine. We're having His Spirit as that sap and the juices that flow through the plant then produce those good fruits in our lives, being rooted, being like that tree planted by streams of water, right? That produces fruit, that bears leaves, that, that is a healthy tree. When we do that, when we let our conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, um, that word conduct, it's interesting. You know, we, we, many times when you look at conduct, especially in the, um, in the scriptures, you know, Old King James, New King James, we think of like uh, conversation sometimes is used. Um, and we think of kind of the way of living, the way of life, a path that we walk on. That's not the word used here. 
It's very interesting. I was surprised as I did the word study here on this. It's actually the word politiuo. It's where we get our English word politics from. That is the word. It's, it's, we get, we, uh, it refers to public duties devolving upon a man or a woman as a member of a body. Is that. That's what it speaks of. It comes from this Roman idea of citizenship. And the idea is that you are in this group of people, this city, this um, you know, place of living with a group of people that you have all these things in common with. And you're under one authority. And being under that authority, you have the duty, the responsibility to be subservient and obedient to that authority but also to serve, to work, to act, to be a part of that community you are in. That's what that is speaking of. It's your responsibility and your duty towards your master and towards those that are in that group, in that society or that city, city that you're in. That's that citizenship. That's what this word is. It's, a, it's your public duties. It's the same word that we see in Philippians 3.20 where it says, um, our citizenship is in heaven. It's that same word, citizenship. So here, Paul, he says, only let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ. See, the point is, is not just your individual actions, whether you say no to a specific sin or whether you're the one who's out there and you're doing what's right as far as worshiping the Lord and praying and reading the scriptures and abstaining from things, but it's your duty and your responsibility to the Lord first in service, in servanthood, being a bondservant, a slave to him, and also your responsibility to those in the church as well. It's a total commitment and a total devotion of your life to Christ and to his church as his body. That's what Paul writes about throughout the scriptures. it's, It's this idea that each and every one of us bears the responsibility for the people around us. We don't get them into heaven. We don't, you know, cause them always to do what's right. But you have a responsibility to serve, to pray for to encourage, to provide for if you can, to be there for someone, to stand alongside them, you have a responsibility as a Christian. We all do, to do those things. We are called as one body. We've, we've heard it just recently um, that where one part of the body suffers, so does the whole body, right? In the scriptures it says that. Where, where one part of the church suffers, so the whole church suffers. And, and we are called as Christians to live for Christ as King, as Lord. But that also means that we have a responsibility to one another. That we, we should not be shutting ourselves up from, our, from the cause, from the plight of the needy, from those who have... Um, who are suffering from those who have uh, needs in prayer. Um, We should not stand by and say, it's not my problem. Whether it may not be directly affecting you or not, if you are part of the church, it is your problem. 
That's what we're called to, right? That's what we see in the whole picture when, it, when, when we see the picture of a body representing the church or the church being represented by a body, right? It's that one part of the body doesn't say to the other part, I don't need you, right? We all need each other, and that's what this is speaking of. Um, it means that Paul is telling the Philippian church here that they have a duty and an obligation as members of the heavenly city to obey Christ as king and to serve the church as their body. Um, I'm reminded of uh, Romans 12, 1, where it says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable. It's our duty to Christ because of the sacrifice that he made for us that we no longer live for ourselves, but we say, your will be done. I will do what you've called me to do. I will be obedient to, to you, and I will serve those around me. That's what Christ says is, is the ultimate fulfillment of the law of God, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the fulfillment of the law. That's what we are called as Christians to do is to be subservient to Christ, to love him, to serve him obediently, and to lay down our lives for one another. And that's what we are called to as Christians. So he says, only let your conduct, your, your citizenship, your polichuo be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Um, you know, just taking a step back there, that verb there, the, to, or that word to be conduct, it actually is in the middle voice, um, which in the Greek it means that you act upon yourself. Again, it goes back to that, that where we let our conduct be worthy. We recognize the duty that we have. As a Christian, I have that responsibility. I can say and fight all I want against it, but if I'm a Christian, I have that responsibility to Christ and to the church. And then we say, I'm going to hold myself to that duty. It's like, almost like swearing an oath. So he says, let your conduct be worthy. That word in the Greek, to be worthy, it means to bear the corresponding weight. It's that idea of the scales that you'd see, where you have a pre-measured out weight that you set on a scale, and then you keep loading up the other side of it until it's balanced out, and the weights correspond with each other. And here Paul says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That your life that you live, your duty to Christ and your duty to the church is as important and bears the, as much weight as the gospel of Christ does in your life. That's what Paul is talking about here, is that your life lived in response to Christ should have the same importance as your salvation does in your life, in your heart, and have that understanding is that as much as Christ died for me, as much as Christ lived for me, as much as he sacrificed himself for me, then I have a duty and responsibility to serve him and then to portray that love in the same manner towards those around me. And to have that same understanding that my conduct is not me getting to heaven. It's not about your salvation, but it's about, again, your duty, your, your, your responsibility. Um, it has to be uh, corresponding to the gospel. 
there's two sides of it. Your citizenship duty and your obligation should have as much as importance in your life as the gospel does. And it means that you put as much weight on living out your salvation, being righteous, doing what's right, as you would on being saved, as much as you would fight for the fact that you would say, I'm saved by grace through faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I don't have to work my way to heaven. I, there's one mediator between God and man. I don't submit myself to a priest for my salvation. I don't allow a man to come between me and God. As much as you would fight for that, we're called to fight for our right living and our right conduct and our responsibility to one another. It, it, it means as much defense as you give to the gospel, so you would give to your working out your salvation. That we're called to let our conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He has done so much for us. We can't ever repay him, but he calls us to follow him. And as we follow him, then he sets before us those needs those opportunities, those things that we can do to then lay our lives down for each other, to stand up, to be a defense, to be a support, an encouragement, to rebuke, to be members of one body serving each other. So Paul, he goes on and he says, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit. Um, Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 14. So we have this calling. We have this responsibility. Paul's writing to the church and he says he wants to come and see them, but understand that they are doing these things. And it's a high calling. Right when we, as we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount, we've looked at this standard that Christ has for our living, for what we're supposed to do, and we can say, "I, I can't do that." In my flesh, I'm prideful. In my flesh, I'm fearful. In my flesh, I'm lazy. In my flesh, I'd rather have pleasure and comfort than I would have suffering and, and sacrifice. And we can say all of those things. The beautiful thing is that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, it says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, that's the key, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He goes on to say, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ uh, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then keep going on. He says, I therefore, verse 1 of chapter 4, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness 
and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. And then he goes on to talk about the spiritual gifts in the church. But here we have this beautiful prayer that Paul has where he talks about Christ dwelling in the heart of the Christian through faith, rooting them in, grounding them in love, being strengthened by the Spirit. And he talks about the work of Christ in the heart of a believer, that he has not called you to something that is too high above you that you cannot do it in his strength. In his strength. That's the qualifier. In his strength. That Christ has done that work in you and then calls you to walk with him. And we see that that, that gift, the power that he has, verse 20, it talks about him. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think within the confines of that. According to the power that works in us. The power that brings us to salvation. And because of all of these things, we then have the responsibility to walk worthy of his irrevocable calling. Romans 11.29 says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It means that God will not pull them back from us. I believe that we can walk away from those things, but that's our choice, again. But... God will not revoke those gifts in us if we truly choose to continue to follow him. Then he gives us those things and he calls us and he doesn't let go. And I think even those times, if we haven't hardened our heart and completely uh, been so stiff-necked that God has given us over to things, to, to wickedness and to our own ways, then even then God continues to call us. Many of us can testify when we've been in rebellion against the Lord that he doesn't relent, that he doesn't give up, that he doesn't just walk away from us, that he continues to constantly call us, to draw us. And as he does that, his calling is irrevocable. And that's beautiful because that means that if you are choosing to be obedient to him, then he'll continue to call you on. He'll continue to bring you to those places where he wants you to be, to serve him, and he gives you the strength to do it. And we see, of course, the pictures of the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, the effects of the Spirit. We're not looking at the fruit of the Spirit here, but it looks like lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, love, unity, and peace here. We don't have time to read it, but in Colossians 1, 9 through 12, Paul prays for the church there that they would be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. That if they possess this knowledge, this understanding of God's will, then they would be enabled to walk worthy of the Lord. That they would understand Him. And again, that, that, that being filled with the knowledge, the work of the Spirit in their hearts, and, and the understanding of God in their hearts, then it produces good works, good fruit. We see that they would be fruitful in good works, that they would increase in knowledge, that they would have patience, that they would have long-suffering, joy, and thankfulness. We see those things in the church, that Christ has called the church to those things. And as we walk with Him, as we let our conduct 
be worthy of the gospel of Christ, then we see that, that those things that we so long for, we so desire, we so want to see in the church, it, 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 it is just produced by the Spirit in our lives. And, we, and again, we have that, that responsibility towards the Lord and towards His church. And in doing that, we seek by the Holy Spirit to serve, to serve each other and to serve the Lord. Go back to Philippians He says that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together. Stand fast here, it, it describes holding one's ground in the face of opposition. It's just that idea of a soldier that's holding the line, of a, a watchman that's standing there and keeping guard. It means to not move from where you have been called. To not move from it. Christ, as we place our faith in him, he sets us in the position we're supposed to be in. And then he calls us to not move from it. He calls us to stand. Right? We're called to grow. We're called to, to, to do, um, be, be faithful to him and to serve him and to not move from that. Um, and it says to stand fast in one spirit. And that spirit, it's not speaking of the Holy Spirit. It means the, the individual spirit, which is your, your disposition or the influence you have over your own soul. It's, so it's, it's, it's making those willful choices in, in your heart and your life where you choose to, to stand fast. You choose to, to, be, uh, to come together in service to one with one another, where it's that stand fast in one spirit. First Corinthians one ten it says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now that's in submission to, in alignment with the Word of God. We're called to be in one spirit. We're to have that speaking the same thing, the truth of God, the truth of Christ, that there wouldn't be any divisions among us, but that we would be perfectly joined together with the same mind and in the same judgment. And as we submit to the scriptures, as we submit to the word of the Lord, as we submit to him, then we can stand with Christians around the world and we can say we stand together as one body, as one church. There are doctrinal differences that can cause divisions. There are things that we, we should not compromise on, not bend on as a church. And we see those examples in the scriptures as Paul defends the gospel, as he speaks about heresy and things coming into the church, the Judaizers, and even calls out and rebukes Peter and the other disciples in their treatment of Gentiles. You see that. That's not the division or the being of one mind that, that he's talking about, but he's talking about in alignment with the Scriptures, in alignment with the Word of God, in being submitted wholly to Him and allowing God in His Spirit through His Word to dictate how our lives live, are lived and who we are as a Christian, as a believer. It says, stand fast 
in one spirit with one mind. And it means only one mind. It's the psyche in the Greek. It's the seat of your feelings, your desires, your affections, and your aversions. What you're averse to. See, I, I firmly believe that as we submit ourselves more and more to Christ, then we, we let those individual things that are our opinions, our, our uh, personal feelings, desires, affections, aversions, go to the wayside because we're presenting ourselves as sacrifices to the Lord allowing him to work through our hearts and our lives. It's not that we become automatons or that we become completely devoid of personality or who we are, but it's that we, we lay down our lives for one another, but, and we also um, we choose to follow Christ and, and stand and walk in his will and not our own. And as we do that in the mind of Christ, as we do that in submission to him, then he aligns us. He's the one who gives us that one mind, that one spirit. It says striving together for the faith of the gospel. And that's the point, is that striving together. That striving, it speaks of an athletic exercise. It's working together as a team in perfect coordination against a common opposition. The world, the flesh, and the devil hate the church, hate Christ, and we have that common opposition. And if we work together, if we strive together, if we are in Christ, in him, if we're letting our conduct be worthy of his gospel, standing fast in one spirit with one mind, and we're striving together, then we stand together with Christ in perfect coordination against that opposition. It's not that that we stomp out Satan here on earth. That's what Christ has done. And Christ will do. It's not that we make our nation be uh, a theocracy. But it's that we as a church, we stand for what's right together. We stand for each other. We strive together as a team, working together against a common opposition. That's the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jude 1.3, it says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. We're called to contend for that faith. We're to fight for it. We're to stand up for it. We're to share the gospel. It's not that we take up arms and we shoot people down who stand against the gospel, but it's that we we stand up in defense of those who are being persecuted. We stand up, and we we, uh, stand up in defense of the gospel in that we continue to be obedient to it. That's our defense, where we don't recant. We don't compromise. We don't step back. We don't lose ground. But we stand together, encouraging each other. Don't give up. Don't let in. Right? Don't move from the truth of the scriptures. Don't walk away from the Lord. We work together. We stand. That's how we contend for the faith, is that we continue. We stay strong. 
and we support each other. That's why church is so important. Fellowship is so important. We're not islands to ourselves. You're not lone wolf out there. You're a member of a body. And if you're absent, the body is hurting. Christ calls us to work together, to stand together, to not separate, to not bicker over little things, but to serve each other. And here it says, verse 28, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. And that word terrified, it means uh, to be a shying or a frightened animal. It's like a horse rearing and running away as it's frightened. That's the picture. We're not to, to, to get so um, shocked or in fear of the opposition that we have as Christians that we run away frightened, but we stand our ground. Again, we stand and we do it together because of Christ working in us. Um, that we're not uh, afraid, we're not frightened, shied away, or terrified of our adversaries. That word adversaries, it speaks of being entrenched in opposition. A picture of World War I where they dug those long trenches and they would stand there in those trenches and fight for days and days and days on end. And that's the opposition that we have. It's entrenched against us. It's not moving. It's not going away until Christ comes. That opposition is there. And therefore, if we run away, it's not going to make that opposition go away. If we shy away, it doesn't make it stop. We're called to stand and to contend, to support each other, to work together, to live together, to be obedient to the Lord in light of that opposition. And he says, he continues on, he says, but uh, which is to them, speaking of the adversaries, verse 28, a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. Um, it speaks of this proof is an evident token. It's a legal term that denotes proof obtained by an appeal to facts. It's saying, look, here's the facts, and they're living up to those facts. Therefore, this is an evident token of your perdition, meaning that, that uh, your judgment, your, your condemnation, basically that you're, you're out of your mind, uh, you're, you're doing completely what is wrong. So as we stand together in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and we remain unterrified by the opposition, by the persecution, by the things that come against us, to those who are in opposition against us, for them it says, see, they're out of their minds. They're, they're dead wrong. They're, they're just stubborn. They're, they're uh, unwilling to bend to compromise. They're, they're uh, just there to fight, uh, is what, what the adversary says. It's proof of perdition. Uh, it would convince the opposition that the Christians are dead wrong, but to the Christian, it gives clear evidence of our salvation, that we stand fast without fear. 2 Corinthians 2.15, it says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 
To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. Matthew 10, 34, it says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. If we stand fast as Christians, there will be opposition. The truth of Christ causes division between righteousness and wickedness, between right and wrong. It causes opposition because what is in the world, the world, the flesh, and the devil, hates Christ, hates God. Therefore, it's in opposition. If we stand fast according to the word of God and, and in our conduct, in our, in our duties, in our obligation, in the life that we are living in submission to Christ and in servanthood to the church, that causes division, that takes away peace. That's why Jesus says that we'll have persecution. That's why throughout the New Testament we were promised persecution. We're promised opposition. We're promised trials. We're promised suffering. That's why. is because Christ did not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. And if Christ is in us, then the fragrance of him in us is a fragrance of death to those who are perishing, but life to those who are living. It's that, that beautiful irony there. And it's this um, picture for us. It says, uh, it's a proof of perdition to them, but to you of salvation and that from God. And that being from God means we have his approval. And the picture here, um, the terms that are used here, it speaks of the Colosseum. Now, um, you guys maybe have seen some movies about the gladiators that would fight in the Colosseum. Um, and at the end of their battles, their fights, the person who would be the victor would stand before all the crowds in that Colosseum, as well as Caesar or whoever was overseeing those gladiatorial games. And they, the, the, pers- the victor would look for a sign of approval whether they could live and be approved or whether they would die and be disproved. And that was the thumbs up or thumbs down. And uh, the adversaries would, uh, that it's speaking of here are like that crowd. See, the crowd can be impressed by things that are unjust, unfair, can be uh, uh, impressed by wickedness and can give the thumbs up saying you've done what's right. They can also be opposed to righteousness, opposed to wickedness. I'm sorry, opposed to uh, good, not wickedness. I mean, they, they can be, but, um, but they can be, uh, like the scriptures say, calling good evil and evil good, right? The world, the adversaries are, are fickle. The world is fickle and approves of things that are wrong. And if we stand up and look for approval from the crowds in the Colosseum, then we're going to be led the wrong way. But Christ, who's better than Caesar here uh, in this picture, but Christ is the one who gives us the thumbs up, who gives us the approval. 
if we're if we stand fast in those times of suffering, those times of trial, not being afraid of our adversaries with boldness, with strength, with perseverance. Sometimes just with hanging on. If we continue and we don't let go, then for the world that's proof of perdition. They're they're dead wrong. But for Christ and for ourselves, that's proof of our salvation. It's that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. It's that Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one to whom we look for approval. It's not the world. It's not what uh, the pastor says. It's not what your family says. It's not what the government says. It's not what your employer says. It's not what science says. It's not what anyone else says except for what Christ says about what is right and what's wrong, about what is approved and unapproved. And if we stand for that, we're going to have opposition. But if we strive together, if we trust the Lord, we can stand without fear, not being terrified, not being shied away, but we can stand fast as we're called to. Luke 6.22, it says, Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. That's what Jesus says. Blessed are you. This evidence is not from any other source, the evidence of our salvation. It's not from any other source than God himself, than Christ himself. Verse 29, it says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Christ has given us the faith to not be terrified when facing suffering as it's a benefit. It's part of his grace that he gives us in our salvation. So what he gives us when we're saved is not just that salvation that produces new life in us and a home for the spirit of God, but it's also the faith to stand. He gives to each of us a measure of faith. He gives us those gifts to stand to what, in what he's called us to. It's something we gain at the moment we're saved, and in light of the approval he gives us in our suffering, it becomes a sign of our salvation, that standing fast. For his sake, it says, it speaks not of us suffering in his place, but um, as Paul says in Colossians, that we share in or fill up or complete the sufferings of Christ. Colossians 1.24, it says, For I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. So it's not the Catholic idea of stigmata, you know, where they would like all of a sudden get, you know, holes in their hands or their side and signs of, you know, crowns of thorns and these wounds. It's not that that we, we then have these same wounds that Christ had, but it's that that we um, continue on in the experience of the hatred and the anger and the suffering that Christ experienced in his flesh on the earth that continues in his church because the church is his body. It's a continuation of Christ's suffering is what that is. It's not the suffering for atonement, for salvation. That's not what I'm saying. But the suffering that Christ being the righteous man, 
the perfect man that stood on the earth and suffered these things, that that continues on as he indwells his church here on the earth. And that's what Paul is talking about, is completing, is filling up in his flesh what's lacking in the affliction of, of Christ. It's that continuing on. So your gift, our gift of faith in trusting in Christ for salvation and the suffering that comes as a believer are both one and the same gift of God's grace, of his unmerited favor. They're one and the same. So trusting in Christ for salvation, the faith that we get in order to continue on, that faith to believe in him, and the suffering where we are persevering, where we are standing fast, that comes as a believer, they're the same gift. It's what Christ has given us. That's his grace, the work he's done in our hearts and lives. You know the verse, 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's the promise. He says, verse 30, says, Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Again, that word conflict, it speaks also of an athletic contest. We actually get our English word agony from the Greek word there. It's that idea of striving and straining. It's like the wrestler who's holding on with every fiber of his being, trying to flip that opponent over or trying to keep himself from being pinned on the ground. It's that the blood, sweat, and tears of striving to some physical goal. It's having that same conflict, that agony that we see in Paul. He says that we will have that same agony, that same conflict. It says Paul is, um, I say here, in my notes, I don't know why I say said it says, but Paul is in many ways a forerunner, and he's an example for us of the Christian life that agonizes in contests to come out in the end showing oneself worthy, the conduct worthy of the gospel, worthy of the approval that's already gained by the great judge of the contest. When God said that he was pleased in his son, when God, through Christ on the cross, said it was finished, when God, through the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, resurrected Christ from the dead, he said that's the approval of the work that Christ has done. And in his foreknowledge, he sees each and every one of us in our salvation and in trusting in him as having that approval that Christ got, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. And as we stand in that, then we fight in this agony, in this conflict, as we persevere on. We already have the approval. We're just called to continue on and to persevere until we die or the Lord comes. That's what we're called to, is to continue on, to not give up. Paul, of course, is in is one among many examples. We have scripture and history. As you look at church history, you look at the suffering, the persecution of the church. We have all of those examples of perseverance in Christ and the fruit that was produced as Jesus um, prophesied his church would experience. As the scriptures say, 
that unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it does not produce fruit, right? That's the calling of Christian, is that, that echo of the, that work of Christ on the cross, and then the history, as we see, of the church going forward, is that suffering, that dying to self, and that, that agony in that conflict. First um, Timothy 6.12, it says, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's what we're called to, to fight that good fight of faith, to contend, to lay hold on eternal life, to not let go, to hold fast. And as we do that, as we're letting our conduct be worthy, our duty and our obligation to our Savior and to His body, to His church, as we're doing those things, then we come to the end and we can say, I've confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's what we're called to as Christians. Is Christ your Lord or is He your servant? It's the question we have to ask ourselves. Is he your Lord, the ruler, the one who you've submitted to yourself in, as a slave to, bondservant, willingly? Or is he there to do what you ask him to as your servant? Is he in your life to rule and to reign, to call you to suffering, to call you to obedience to him? to sacrifice for the church, for him? Or is it to make your life better? Is he there to produce good fruit in your life through that persecution? Or is he there to just bless you? He gives us blessings. He promises us blessings but he also promises us those persecutions, and he's called us to be obedient to him. So what has he called you to? Does he, has he called you to just sit and wait for his coming, or has he called you to obedience? Has he laid on your heart a person you need to share the gospel with? Has he convicted you of sin and you haven't repented? Has he called you to Give up an aspect of your life so that you can serve him more closely and better. Has he called you to step out in faith in something? Has he called you to just walk with him, to conduct your lives? I think he's done that for all of us. He wants us to contend earnestly for the faith and as we read here where it talks about our conduct being worthy of that polichuamai, to give as much weight to contending earnestly for the church and Christ's total lordship over our lives as we do to the gospel, to our salvation, as much as we fight to make sure that we are saved, that we long to have that salvation, to be right with the Lord, that should be we should give as much weight in our service to the church and to allow the Lord to have lordship, true lordship over our lives. 
we're called to serve the Lord and each other. Um, I'm fearful of certain things in the church, not specifically our church. I don't know everyone's heart or attitude or spirit, um, but I'm concerned. You know, we are facing a time, and you can you can shake your head in disagreement all you want, um, but I think history shows itself to be true and, and to be, uh, if not repeating, at least rhyming in what we're seeing nowadays. Um, I was raised reading and listening to stories of people, women like Corey Ten Boom in Holland, who she and her family served and, and hid Jews during World War II, Nazi Germany. Well, she was in uh, Holland, actually. Uh, some family relatives of my dad's, actually, in Holland um, are commemorated in Israel for having hidden Jews during World War II. Um, they had the privilege of going to um, Yad Vashem in Israel and having a ceremony commemorating them. Not that that gives me any boasting. I didn't do anything for that. But I was raised on those sorts of things. I had the opportunity to travel to the Holocaust Museum in New York City. Um, to travel through, you get a passport of a person, a Jew that was killed, persecuted. You can go through, you can see the piles of shoes, hair, teeth, watches, suitcases, dolls. You can see all of those things. Hear, read, see pictures of people that were slaughtered, were persecuted, put in concentration camps. I also had the opportunity to travel to Auschwitz in Poland and to see the same things, to stand in a gas chamber to see scratches down the wall from where people were trying to get out. Um, I had the opportunity to travel to Budapest, to the largest synagogue in the world. And in their courtyard, they have a solid stainless steel weeping willow tree as a sculpture. All the leaves are these brass leaves printed, stamped on them, the names of somebody from Hungary who was killed, a Jew who was killed in the persecution that came in there. We're not there yet in America. But what we are seeing is a rampant disregard for human rights, for the lives of people, for their convictions, for the freedom and God-given liberty that every human has. And we as a church, whatever you believe about the vaccines... Whatever you believe about the masks or the lockdowns or any of those things, we as a church are called to stand up and to speak for those who are being oppressed. We serve our church. We serve our Lord. We stand up and we fight for them first and foremost. Who are we to have a hard heart towards someone who's standing in their convictions in the Lord? We should be supporting them. We should be praying for them. We should be seeking to provide for them as they lose their jobs or as they they suffer. Whatever comes. Matthew 25, 37 through 46. We don't have time to read it. I'd write it down. But 
we should remember what Christ said. He talks about the end of days and he talks about the sheep and the goats gathering before him. Remember at the end he's judging the righteous and the, and the wicked and he says, Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. I believe specifically it's speaking about the treatment of Israel, but I think generally it speaks about the treatment of people by other people. The righteous, the one who serves, the one who loves, the one who does what Christ called us to. What's the picture that Jesus gives in the parable of the Good Samaritan? Right? The better neighbor was the one who didn't believe what was right. He was the one who did what was right. He was the one who served, who loved his neighbor. Proverbs 14.21 He who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. We're not talking necessarily just about poor We'll see that later on. It is poor, but it's more than just poor, meaning you don't have money. Proverbs 17, 15, it says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. If you justify wickedness, if you justify wrong being done to other people, it's just as much an abomination to the Lord as as those who condemn God's righteous people. Proverbs 21.13, it says, Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. In Proverbs 31.8-9, it says, Open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. Church, We need to stand up for the church. We need to stand up for those who are being persecuted. We need to stand up for those who are being oppressed. Whether they're Christian or not, we need to stand up for them. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Right? He didn't die for the godly. He died for the ungodly. He died for the sinners. We're called to that. We're called to stand up. You can say what you want about politics. You can say what you want about science. You can say all of those things. But God has called you to a higher calling. That's what he says that matters. It doesn't matter what science says. It doesn't matter the political party you're aligned with or, or who you think is right or wrong. You're a servant of Christ. And you're called to walk with him. We all are. Let's do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray, Lord, I know uh, your word is truth. I pray that we would not shy away from what your word has to say, Lord. If there are things that I've said that are just my opinion, that just come out of my heart in my life rather than out of what your word says.